on when Mark wrote his first draft of the book of Mark. Y'all have never, never heard this story? And uh, he wrote it, and Peter said, listen, Mark, if you put in there what I did, you got to put something that you did, too, because you and I both know what happened. And there must have been that discussion because this passage, these two verses, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus when they seized him. He fled naked, leaving his garment behind. The only, the only gospel it appears in is the book of Mark. And, of course, Peter had a number of flaws and failed the Lord a number of times. But I'm sure that discussion went on back and forth. And probably Peter said, now, Mark, you got to put your name in there. you got to take it. My name's on the line, too. But Mark, exercising that discretion that the Holy Spirit gave him, said, well, I'm just going to put a young man. Just going to put that down. I'm not putting my name in my book about streaking. Well, that's the first idea we see about this individual Mark. He, like many of the others, as they all fled, they everyone deserted Jesus. Everyone fled. And, of course, the story continues and we see the resurrection power and how Jesus in, enables the Christians to really change and make a difference. And uh, you are familiar with the passages that talk about how Peter was one of the major leaders and one of the major preachers and one of the major influences. And then, of course, Paul becomes a Christian and is encouraged by Barnabas and spends some time with him and gets up to speed. And then we go to turn over to Acts 12 because this is the next time that we see Mark. He doesn't appear in the scriptures very often, but in Acts chapter 12, verse 25, it simply says, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. And it talks a little bit more about this. And then in Acts 13, 13, and from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia. But then John left them to return to Jerusalem. Now, John Mark was a, kind of a middle, as best I could tell, a kind of a middle-class individual in uh, Jerusalem. And he lived with his mother Mary, and she had a rather nice home because they often had the disciples gathering there in Mary's home. And John Mark was very close to the Apostle Peter, like I indicated there. And the interesting thing is, is that we are never told in the scriptures why it was that John left and returned to Jerusalem. And you look on the first missionary journey that they went on that John 
was selected, and he went on, and they went to, they traveled quite a, a long way, but they only went about a third way into the trip, and then John left, and that's all it says. He went back home to Mama in Jerusalem. And uh, then the next time we see in the book of Acts, John Mark is in Acts 15, 36 to 41. You may turn over just to two, more, two or three more pages. Where it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark, also called John Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And you look on the, the map and you see that basically there was very, a, quite a very sharp disagreement between Paul and between Barnabas. And it was all about the uh, individual Mark. Evidently he'd done something wrong as far as Paul was concerned. But Barnabas felt like he still had that uh, ability or that capability that he ought to give, be given a second chance to go. And they had such a, <clears throat> a sharp disagreement that they split. Paul took Silas and he went north, straight north, and Barnabas took John Mark and went over to Cyprus, which is a big, it's, it's a big area, and it doesn't, and the interesting thing is, is that's all that we're told about John Mark in the book of Acts. You never hear from him again, but it's all Paul and Silas and uh, the, the things that they're working on and the things that they're doing, and uh, yet the interesting thing that happens is you go on and you pick up some information about John Mark that is found clearly over in uh, when evidently uh, Paul and Silas went on their missionary journey and traveled and uh, finished out the book of Acts and Barnabas and John Mark went over to Cyprus and whatever they did uh, the Holy Spirit didn't decide it was worth putting down and uh, but the interesting thing is is that evidently that happened in wait, maybe 45 48 BC and then about 10 or 12 15 years later you get the information that there was a restoration of John Mark with Paul because he was evidently with him in Rome when Paul was in prisoner, because you turn over to Colossians 4.10, where it says, My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instruction about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Evidently, Mark 
was back in Paul's good graces because he'd been with him in Rome. And uh, Mark was giving his greetings to the fellow prisoner. Uh, and that's maybe 10 or 15 years later. And then we find in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, Paul, in his very last letter, says this in verses 9 through 11, Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. But get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. And so we see the, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, people that are selected by God to do great things and be a part of the ministry. And it, it doesn't make any difference what your mistakes are if you're willing to confess them to God and to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. That wonderful verse in 1 Corinthians, uh, excuse me, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for, from all unrighteousness. And it's, I wanted to bring to your attention to, uh, another interesting present day, well, 20th century anyway, 21st, 20th and 21st century, somewhere around there. This is uh, from a book, The Savage My Kinsman by Elizabeth Elliot, a true story of faith and courage. And maybe you remember this. I was looked back and figured out that I was 13 years old when this took place. In January of 1956, the world recoiled in shock with the news that five American missionaries had been speared to death in the Ecuadorian jungles by the Alca Indians, reported to be the most savage tribe on earth. The story quickly spread through every major wire service and newspaper and was covered in detail by Life magazine. What seemed to all the world like the tragic ending of the missionary's dream to reach the isolated tribe was only the first chapter of one of the most breathtaking missionary stories of the 20th century. Uh, probably a lot of you don't remember back in 1956. <laughs> I'm one of the old guys around here, so I get to tell you what it was like. I can remember looking at Life magazine and seeing pictures that they took of those missionaries, and I, I, I wasn't really a, a true believer, I don't think, in Jesus Christ at the time, and yet I thought, man, what amazing courage, and what unbelievable dedication they must have had to give their lives like that. The Savage, My Kinsman, this little book that Elizabeth Elliot wrote, tells the story in text and pictures of Elizabeth Elizabeth Elliot's venture into the Alca territory to live with the same Indians who had killed her husband, Jim Elliot, nearly three years earlier. Far from the meaningless tragedy, it seemed to many, her husband's death brought to her a burning desire to take Christ's message of salvation to the Alcas. Here's the true story of Elizabeth Elliot, 
her three-year-old daughter, and Rachel Saint, the sister of one of the murdered missionaries, the first ever to enter the Alka territory and to live to tell the story. That's why Christianity has changed the world. That's why a mission work with a Christian foundation is so dramatically different and so powerfully able to solve the tragedies and the conflict that's in our world today is because here's two ladies whose husbands are speared to death by what was considered by many at the time the most savage tribe in that particular area of the country. And yet these two ladies and one of their little daughters, three years old, were praying that God would give them the opportunity to go back to that tribe and communicate the gospel to those people. That, my friends, is something that is supernatural. It really is. And that's what Mark experienced. Not to the same quality, but here's what they say in this uh, Elizabeth Elliot writes in her book, because she was there with Rachel Saint for a couple of years. And then they had, they came to a conclusion that just like Paul, they decided that they just, you know, Paul didn't want to be hanging around with Mark on his team anymore. And Rachel and Elizabeth Elliot uh, had a falling out, and so Elizabeth Elliot left. But Elizabeth Elliot wrote this book, and she says, It's the truth that I want to tell here, but it cannot be the whole truth, not because of any desire to gloss over the facts which ought to be stated, much less to favor a fiction. But for one thing, I don't know all of the truth, only my side of it. For another, I must be brief, but people ask, and some explanation is due. There were differences between Rachel Saint and me. My conviction grew that that little village was too small to accommodate two missionaries who were not in any strict, truthful sense really work, working together. One of us, it appeared, must go. And my decision was a painful one, so she left. But she goes on to say here, two opposite trends in current Christian thinking are dangerous. One is the sheer triumphalism, which is the coin of much religious telecasting. Make it appealing, make it cheap, make it easy, be a Christian and watch your difficulties dissolve. Obey God and everything you touch will turn to gold. The other is the expose out of a very muddy notion of something called equality and perhaps also out of an exaggerated fear of hero worship or cultism springs an urge to spy out all weaknesses and inconsistencies and thereby discredit practically all human effort, especially when its intention is an unselfish one. She goes on to say, we must all re recognize that as long as we are in these what Paul calls vile in these bodies, our attempts to offer salvation and life will be mixed with corruption and death. Because of the earnestness and the obedience of five men, the Alka Indians were finally reached, but the men died. 
The world noted their death with awe, with cynicism, with indifference. Some Christians were aroused to missionary responsibility. You listen to Chuck Swindoll, and he tells the story about how he read that story as a young Marine going over to his duty station, I think, in Okinawa, and how it just absolutely impacted his life like no Christian book had ever done. He read the story that uh, Elizabeth Elliot wrote, the, Through Gates of Splendor, about the life of Jim Elliot. The world noted their death with awe, with cynicism, with indifference. Some Christians were aroused to missionary responsibility, and other men. I was aroused, but uh, <laughs> I didn't go to the mission field outside the United States of America. But as I read that book, Through Gates of Splendor, I was uh, very active in Campus Crusade for Christ, and my, my commitment to take the gospel to the pagan on the university campuses of the United States of America was just sealed. I had to go. And uh, I, I became so excited about Bill Bright's uh, phrase, winning the world of Christ. Win the campus to Christ today and win the world of Christ tomorrow. And uh, so I was just one of the, I just put that, that's an insert there. Some Christians were aroused to missionary responsibility. I, Matt Crenshaw wasn't one of those that she's referring to at that time anyway. But nine children were left fatherless. The example of their fathers that set for these children, however, remains a strong and noble one. Much that was true appeared in Christian publications regarding the story. So did much that was false. She goes on to say, the Aucas heard the gospel. They also got polio. Some died from it. Others were crippled. Oil companies have been able to enter what were formerly forbidden areas, so the Indians now have tools, shortwave radios, hypodermic syringes and penicillin, helicopter pads and hard hats. It's hardly necessary to point out that for every civilized blessing, there seems often to be ten curses. The hunting grounds on which the Indians depended for food are being systematically destroyed by the search for petroleum. It's interesting how we long to point to something, anything, and say, this works. This is sure, but if it is something other than God himself, we are destined for disappointment. There is only one ultimate guarantee. It's the love of Christ. The love of Christ Nothing in heaven or earth or hell can separate us from that. And because God is God and loves us, he will not allow us to rest anywhere but in that love. We run straight to him when other refuges fail. Our misconceptions are co corrected in Jesus Christ. Our failures redeemed. Our sins cleansed. Our griefs turned to joy. But first, the life of Jesus must be manifest in our mortal bodies. First, that drama must be played out through suffering, weakness, failure, death, and resurrection. She continues to say, God, keep us 
from sitting in the seat of the scornful, concentrating solely on the mistakes, the paltriness of our efforts, the width of the gap between what we hope for and what we got. How shall we call this Christian work? What shall we make of it? We must not proceed from our own notions of God's action, but must look clearly and unflinchingly at what happens and seek to understand it through the revelation of God in Christ. His life on earth had the most inauspicious beginning. There was the scandal of the virgin birth, the humiliation of the stable, the announcement not to village officials but to uncouth shepherds. A baby was born a savior and king, but hundreds of babies were subsequently murdered because of him. His public ministry, surely no tour of triumph, no thundering success story, led not to stardom but to crucifixion. Multitudes followed him, but most of them wanted to what they could get out of him, and in the end, all his disciples fled. Yet out of this seeming weakness and failure, out of his very humbling to death, what exultation and what glory. For the will of Christ is not a quantitative thing, static and measurable. The sovereign God moves in mysterious relation to the freedom of man's will. We can demand no instant reversals. Things must be worked out according to the divine design and timetable. Sometimes the light rises excruciatingly slowly. The kingdom of God is like leaven and seed, things which work silently, secretly, slowly, but there is in them an incalculable transforming power. I love that. The kingdom of God, God's work at you, in your life is like leaven and seed, things which work silently, secretly, slowly, but there is in them an incalculable transforming power. So it's my prayer and that you and I will learn from the example of Mark that even starting out as a streaker in the Bible, you can end up one of Paul's really close, trusted disciples and fellow heirs of Jesus Christ. And the uh, challenge I think it is for you and me today is to recognize that this is how you and I need to see God working in your life and in my life and in the people around you slow like leaven you don't see always what is taking place but as you forgive those who curse you you know pray for those who despitefully use you bless not curse those that treat you you're going to find the kingdom of god being formed not only in your individual life but in the life of those around you father in heaven we thank you for the Wonderful example of Mark, John Mark, that wrote Mark in the Bible, the wonderful gospel, all those exciting uh, action-filled uh, pictures of how Jesus lived his life and led his disciples and died on the cross.